And we will read verses 161 through 168. Again, Psalm 119, beginning in verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Pray with me this morning. Our Father in heaven, as we gather on this Lord's Day, in this corporate time of worship, we acknowledge that it is in you that we live and move and have our being, that it is from you that we have our life, that it is from your power that our heart even beats this very moment. It is by your power, by your enablement that we have health, and have even the desire to worship you as we are even now. Father, we thank you for this tremendous grace that you have shed upon us as a nation, that you have given us religious liberty, that we can gather here freely, without penalty, without fear of arrest, without fear of persecution, and this is not something that everybody who is gathering today enjoys as we do. And so, Father, we are tremendously mindful, we are tremendously thankful that you have given us a place to meet so that we can freely worship you, that we can study your word together. Our heart stands in awe of your words, and we rejoice in your word as one who finds great spoil. We love your word more than we love money, more than we love things, more than we love the temporary treasures of this world. We hate falsehood. We hate everything that would violate your word, your truth. Father, we praise you because you are righteous and because all of your commandments are righteous. Father, we are grateful for the peace that you give to us in our justification that we are no longer under your wrath and we are no longer condemned because of Christ. And we thank you for the experiential peace that we enjoy with you as we live according to your law. 
Father, our hope is not in ourselves. It is not in our good works. It is not in anything in this world. It is in you. And we wait upon you. We wait upon you to bring our salvation to its fulfillment. And for the second coming of Christ and for the establishment of his kingdom. Father, we pray that you would minister to us with your word. That you would produce within us a deeper love, a deeper awe for your words. Lord, we know that you are here. You are among us. You are with us as you always are. All of our ways are naked and laid bare before you. Our hearts are an open book before your all-seeing eyes. Lord, as we confess our sins, as we seek forgiveness again through Christ, Lord, may you bring us to the place of humble and broken submission before you. The proud, O oh God, you know from afar, but you are attracted to those who are broken and contrite of spirit. Father, may you assist us, may you help us. We run to you for our strength and for our joy, and we ask for your help in all that we do as we gather on this blessed Lord's Day. And as we again celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our behalf. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. When you hear the name John Calvin, what is the very first thing that comes into your mind? For many, they would say the doctrine of predestination. Others would say it is the five points of Calvinism. But in Calvin's most significant theological work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he wrote more about the subject of prayer than he did the subject of predestination. And the five points of Calvinism were not developed until after John Calvin died. John Calvin was many things, but primarily he was a preacher. He was not just any kind of preacher. He was an expository preacher of the first rank. Calvin was born in France 
but he would spend the majority of his ministry in the city of Geneva, Switzerland. And there he gave himself completely to the task of preaching the word of God verse by verse, book by book, week after week, month after month, year after year, until he died. Calvin wrote that the minister's, quote, whole task is limited to the ministry of God's word, their whole wisdom to the knowledge of his word, their whole eloquence to its proclamation, end quote. Calvin also said, quote, a rule is prescribed to all God's servants that they bring not their own inventions, but simply deliver as from hand to hand what they have received from God. In the 25 years that Calvin spent preaching in Geneva, he preached virtually through all of the Bible. To give you a sense of his preaching in the Old Testament, he preached through the book of Genesis, 123 sermons, Deuteronomy, 201 sermons, 1 Samuel, 107 sermons, 2 Samuel, 87 sermons, Job, 159 sermons, Isaiah, listen to this, 353 sermons through the book of Isaiah, 47 in Daniel, 175 in Ezekiel, and on and on it goes. He also preached through books of the New Testament, Acts, 89 messages, 1 Corinthians, 110, 2 Corinthians, 66, Ephesians, 48, 2 Timothy, 31. He was relentlessly committed to verse-by-verse sequential exposition of Scripture. After being in Geneva for just 21 months, he was fired from being pastor. Three years later, the city of Geneva wanted him back. After significant reluctance, Calvin returned to Geneva where he would spend the rest of his life preaching the word of God verse by verse. On the very first Lord's Day, upon his return to the city of Geneva, he resumed preaching in the very next verse from where he had left off some three and a half years ago. Now, why was Calvin so relentlessly committed to the exposition of the Word of God? The answer, in part, lies in his high view of Scripture. One of my favorite Calvin quotes is as follows. He says this, We owe to the Scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from Him. We owe to the Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God himself because this word comes from God. One biographer said of Calvin, this is a profound statement, for Calvin, the message of Scripture is sovereign, sovereign over the congregation and sovereign over the preacher. His humiliation is shown by his submitting to this authority. End quote. The impact of Calvin's ministry was very significant, to say the least. Protestant Christians from all over Europe, from France, from Scotland, from England, from Germany, from Italy, flocked to Geneva seeking safety from life-threatening dangers in their native lands. 
Soon the population of Geneva doubled from 10,000 to 20,000 people. The city was full of people who wanted nothing more than the word of God, and Calvin was their teacher. What Rome was to the Roman Catholic Church, Geneva became to the Protestant movement. Beloved, I share all of this with you because John Calvin is one of the greatest examples of someone who lived out the mandate for expository preaching that is found in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2. And so when you hear the name John Calvin, the first thing you think of should not be the doctrine of predestination. It should not be the five points of Calvinism. It should be expository preaching. Because this, more than anything else, defined his life and his ministry. One month before Calvin died, the year 1564, Calvin wrote this in his last will and testament. He dictated these words. Here's what he said. Quote, in the name of God, I, John Calvin, servant of the word of God in the church of Geneva, I declare that I endeavor to teach his word undefiled and to expound Holy Scripture faithfully according to the measure of grace which he has given me. The legacy of John Calvin, in his own words, is that he was a servant of the word of God. What a definition of a preacher. A servant of the word of God, and he endeavored to teach his word undefiled and to expound holy scripture faithfully. That is a tremendous definition of a faithful man of God. Now, as we said last time, expository preaching is the first mark of a healthy church. It is to have a central and primary place in the church because as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. A strong pulpit leads to a strong church. A weak pulpit leads to a weak church. And as we also said, expository preaching is expository exaltation. That is how John Piper defines it. That is a masterful definition of preaching. That is to say the aim of preaching is to explain the God-intended meaning of the biblical text so that the people of God will understand that text and delight in that text. And as a result, they will be drawn to worship God, to rejoice in God in light of an accurate knowledge of the biblical text. Preaching can be defined this way. It is the blending of theology and doxology. It is theology that is proclaimed, that is to produce doxology in those who listen. Now as we return to our text in 2 Timothy 4, I remind you that what we have in front of us is Paul's final climactic charge that he gave to young Timothy. Paul is writing under the shadow of his eminent martyrdom, and he ends the body of his final letter by addressing the main thing that Timothy must commit himself to in his ministry, namely the preaching of God's word. In this text, Paul unfolds principles for faithful preaching, beginning with Roman numeral 1, the solemnity of preaching in verse 1. The first thing that Timothy must understand is that preaching must be viewed with a high sense of solemnity. Preaching is a weighty, a very serious responsibility, one that is never to be taken lightly. 
Steve Lawson says, quote, to step into the pulpit is to enter onto holy ground. To stand behind an open Bible demands no trifling with sacred things. To be a spokesman for God requires utmost concern and care in handling and proclaiming the word. And he is right. The second principle that Paul gives to Timothy for faithful preaching, Roman numeral 2, the biblical content of preaching in verse 2. If the preacher is going to be faithful... He must have the right attitude and the right content in his preaching. He must view preaching with a sense of fear and trembling in the presence of God, and he must also preach the word. He must give himself to the public proclamation of the word of God. The faithful preacher then is a preacher of one book, that is God's book. His message is not his own message, it is God's message. In his preaching, his responsibility is simply to communicate the message of God without alteration and without compromise. Further, he is to preach the entirety of the word of God. He has no right to be selective. He has no right to skip any verse, any passage, any paragraph, any chapter, any book. He is a man under divine authority. He must preach the whole counsel of God So that as Steve Lawson says, quote, no truth should be left untaught, no sin unexposed, no grace unoffered, and no promise undelivered, end quote. Now as we focus our attention back on verse 2, the command to preach the word is the first in a series of five commands here in verse 2. It is the first, it is the primary command, and the other four commands which follow it expand upon this first command to preach the word. In the first command, Paul tells Timothy what to preach, namely the word of God, and then in the following commands, he tells Timothy, listen, when to preach and how to preach, all of which are critical for the preacher if he is to be faithful. Look at the second command with me there in verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season. The verb is be ready. The word literally means to set something upon or to stand. And the idea is to stand in a position of readiness. To be ready, to be prepared. Timothy's duty is to preach the word, and he must make sure that he is in a position of readiness to perform that duty, Paul says, in season and out of season. What does that mean? It's simple. Timothy, your duty is to preach the word, and you must stand by that duty at all times. At all times. You must always be in a position of readiness to preach the word in season and out of season. And I ask you, is there any other season? There is no other season beyond what is in season and what is out of season. So, Timothy, be ready at all times is the message. Like a good soldier who is always ready for battle, he always has his sword sharp and ready for battle. Timothy must always be prepared to preach the word, whether it is in season or it is out of season. Whether it is convenient or whether it is inconvenient. Whether you feel like it or whether you don't feel like it. Whether it is easy or not easy. Whether it is popular or whether it is not popular. In season 
and out of season. It matters not what is culturally acceptable. It matters not what is trending. It matters not what the public opinion polls say. The responsibility of the preacher to preach the word never changes. It is constant. It is timeless. Now, from what we can ascertain about Timothy, from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he seems to have been shy, he seems to have been reserved, and he even seems to be somewhat reluctant in fulfilling his ministerial duties. He suffered from health problems. 1 Timothy 5.23 indicates this. He faced opposition inside of the church, and he faced persecution from outside of the church, and therefore his ministry was not an easy one. Knowing all of this, Paul, as a spiritual father and mentor to Timothy, therefore appealed to Timothy that he would resist any sense of reluctance to preach the word. And instead, he must always be in a position of readiness, whether it is in season or whether it is out of season. Timothy, do not shrink from your duty. Now let me illustrate this second command from the ministry of John Calvin. So much could be said here. I have to really limit what I say for the sake of time. As I've already noted, Calvin was relentlessly committed to the exposition of Scripture. But let me explain the circumstances of his life in which he preached. Number one, Calvin suffered from numerous health problems. And I accent the word numerous. His physical afflictions read like a medical journal. He suffered from, let me read the list. He suffered from stomach cramps, digestive problems, intestinal influenza, recurring migraines, fevers that would lay him up for weeks, problems with his trachea, pleurisy, gout, colic, hemorrhoids that were aggravated by an internal abscess that wouldn't heal, severe arthritis and acute pain in his knees, calves, and feet, And he also suffered from acute chronic inflammation of kidneys, gallstones, malaria, kidney stones, and insomnia. That is extremely humbling. I have relatively very few health issues compared to this. Much of his studying and writing were done on the sickbed. In his final years, he often had to be carried to work. One biographer of Calvin said that he hardly had a body. He was so sickly and frail. Well, at least his home life was easy, right? I mean, it's one affliction to have health issues, but what about a home life? Well, his home life was not easy either. So the second thing here, Calvin suffered much in terms of his family life. He never had a child that survived either birth or infancy. He lost all three of his children. Further, after just nine years of marriage, his dear wife, Idolette, died after she had been bedridden for half of their marriage. Calvin never remarried. Profound loss. Three children, a wife, after nine years of marriage. She's in bed half that time. She dies. What is more, he took care of other family members in his home, including many young children, so he took upon that responsibility But at least everyone in the city and the church of Geneva loved him, right? No, that wasn't the case. So the third thing here, Calvin suffered much from the people of Geneva. 
There were certainly many in Geneva who loved and appreciated the ministry of John Calvin. That is why thousands of people flocked there from all over Europe. They wanted Calvin to teach them the Bible. But there were others who did not love and appreciate John Calvin's ministry. As I've already noted, he was fired as pastor after his first 21 months. That is awful early in ministry to be fired. But even after he was asked to return to Geneva, he was so unpopular in some quarters of the city that some people named their dogs after Calvin to show their contempt. That was not an expression of affection to Calvin or their dog. That expressed what they thought of this man. He's a dog. On one occasion, and this is remarkable, Calvin entered the pulpit to preach. He finds an anonymous note on the pulpit, and it contains a death threat. I would say that is out of season. I have never had that experience. Enter the pulpit. Your mind is focused on what the task is at hand. You open the paper, and there is a threat on your life, and you don't know who it is and what may transpire in the preaching event. So, beloved, Calvin did not have the luxury of living in or preaching from an ivory tower. But in spite of every earthly reason, he preached the word in season and out of season. Now, let's look at the next three commands in verse 2. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. According to the first command in verse 2, what is Timothy to preach? The word. According to the second command, when is Timothy to preach? In season and out of season. And now according to the next three commands, how is Timothy to preach? When he preaches the word, he is to reprove, he is to rebuke, and he is to exhort. I want you to observe the similarity between what Paul says here about preaching and what he said earlier in chapter 3 and verse 16 about Scripture. According to three, chapter 3 and verse 16, the work of the Word is to teach, to reprove, to correct, and to train in righteousness. And according to 4.2, the work of preaching the Word is parallel to that. There's a vital connection here. The God-intended purposes of Scripture and preaching are the same. They are the same. What God intends Scripture to do in the life of a Christian, according to 3.16, is the same as what God intends the preaching of His Word to do in the life of the church when it is proclaimed, according to chapter 4 and verse 2. So there is a dramatic and significant parallel between 3.16 and 4.2 in terms of the work of the word and the work of preaching the word. So, Timothy, when you preach the word, you must reprove. This is the same word used in 3.16. It is the idea of conviction. One of the God-intended purposes of preaching is to reprove. It is to convict A proper view of sanctification includes understanding that all Christians have remaining sin and that you will continue to have remaining sin so long as you live in this world. 
So while it is true that you love God, that you love Christ, that you love the gospel, that you love his word, that you endeavor to serve Christ with your life, the other side of that is your daily struggle with sin, even an hourly struggle with sin. As the hymn writer has written, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That is something that every Christian can identify with. That is why when I sing that hymn and I get to that part, I sing it heartily. Because I know what the hymn writer meant by those words, prone to wander. And because this is true of you and because this is true of me, we desperately need the word of God to reprove us. This is essential in our sanctification process. Now I read from Psalm 119 earlier in our scripture reading And if you are familiar with that wonderful psalm, it is a tremendous chapter in the Word of God. All 176 verses of that psalm are committed to extolling the Word of God. It is a tremendous expression of extolling the Word of God. But it is very interesting that in the very last verse of the psalm, verse 176, the psalmist ends like this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Now, if you read verses 1 through 175, and you see all of the expressions of devotion to the Word of God, His longing for the Word, His delight in the Word, His keeping the Word, it is somewhat surprising when He ends by saying, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. But that is the reality of The life of the Christian, isn't it? We love God's word. We keep God's word. We treasure God's word. We obey it. We stand in awe. All of those expressions that are contained in the psalm, we feel all of that. That is our experience. But at the same time, it is also our experience to wander and to go astray and to fall away and to have idols of the heart. And so the psalmist says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. And here's his prayer. Seek your servant. For I do not forget your commandments. This should be a frequent prayer from the lips of every Christian. Oh God, come find me. Seek me. Restore my heart. Bring me back into walking in your presence. So, beloved, our common experience is that when we gather on the Lord's Day, whether it's this Lord's Day or any other Lord's Day, we come having battled with remaining sin every day of the week, if not every hour of every day of the week. We come even having battled with remaining sin on Sunday morning on the way to church, getting ready and arriving here. There is the battle with remaining sin. Even as we sit here, there is the battle that we all face with remaining sin. God knows this about us. He knows our frame. He knows our condition. He knows our needs more than we know them. And therefore, in his infinite wisdom, he intends for the preaching of his word to be a time, listen, that lovingly exposes and convicts you and me of our sin. Praise God for that. I want, I need to be exposed and convicted. And so do you. 
And this is part of the intent of the preaching event. It is to bring awareness to your sin. It is to convict you of your sin. Listen, for your spiritual good. This is not an expression of unkindness in God. This is an expression of love from God, who is your heavenly Father, who wants your holiness. And so this work of the preaching of the word begins with reproof. Next, Paul says, Timothy, when you preach the word, you must also rebuke. This is a stronger word than reprove. Isn't it interesting, at least to me, that the first two commands here that Paul gives Timothy regarding how he is to preach, they're negative. You notice that? They're negative. Reprove, rebuke, those are negative aspects. So what Paul is describing, beloved, is negative preaching. And I can think of little that is as unpopular in our day as negative preaching. If you put a sign up on the marquee, come join us for our series of negative sermons, you will not get anybody. Who wants to listen to a preacher that is negative? Who wants to listen to a series that is negative? I mean, people want a positive message. We want the preacher to stroke our pride. We want the preacher to build up our self-esteem. We want him to tell us how wonderful and how good we are. The last thing that people want is a sermon that is going to reprove them and rebuke them. But we're not asking the public opinion polls... What is the proper way of preaching? Beloved, this is the divine mandate. This is God's command. This is God's requirement for preaching. So I'll tell you who appreciates the negative component of preaching. Those who truly understand the holiness of God and those who truly understand their problem with remaining sin. It is those people who have an appreciation for reproof and for rebuke. If you have no appreciation for God's holiness and your own sinfulness, you won't want the kind of preaching that God calls for. But when you love God and you want your sin to be dealt with severely as it needs to be dealt with, you will want God's intended form of preaching and for that work to be accomplished in your life in terms of reproof and rebuke. Now, if reprove means to convict you of your sin, as we've already noted, rebuke goes a step further. It tells you to stop your sin. It's one thing to be exposed. It's one thing to be convicted. It's one thing to have curtains sort of unfolded in your life and for the sin to be exposed for what it is. And it is another thing to be told to stop, to be censored. For your sin. And that's what this term of rebuke means. The preached word first exposes your sin, then it calls you to turn away from your sin. In other words, true biblical preaching, listen carefully, it has a sanctifying effect upon those who hear. Sanctifying preaching is biblical preaching, biblical preaching is sanctifying preaching. 
Don't give me a preacher who doesn't contribute to my sanctification. That is the only kind of preacher that I am interested in listening to, one that will help me in my struggle, in my long process, my long journey of sanctification, of becoming less and less like me and more and more like Christ, conforming less and less to the world and conforming more and more to the image and person of Christ. One of the best comments on preaching that I have ever heard, and I've heard many, I have many good books on preaching, heard many good sermons on preaching, but here is one of the best in my opinion. John MacArthur says this, quote, hard, convicting, biblical preaching makes soft people. That is a profound statement. And he goes on to say, Soft preaching makes hard people. Hard preaching makes soft people. Soft preaching makes hard people. You show me a church where the preaching is soft, and I will show you a congregation of hard-hearted people. You show me a church where the preaching is hard and biblical and strong and convicting, and I will show you a congregation where the people's hearts are soft. It has been softened by the word of God because that is God's intended work in the preaching of his word, to soften the hearts of those who hear as the word of God comes forth like a hammer and as it exposes our sin and as it crushes our sin in a loving, graceful way and as it calls us to stop our sin. So preaching the word of God has a definite negative component to it, but listen, it is not entirely negative. There is a positive side for which I'm very grateful. Paul goes on to say this third little term, exhort. This is a beautiful word. It literally means to call to one side. It is the picture of someone coming to the side of another person and putting his arm around that person. It is translated many ways in the New Testament. It can be translated to comfort. This is the word from which Jesus describes the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the same word here. So it can be translated to comfort. It can be translated to encourage, to urge, to exhort, as the NAS does here. However it's translated, the idea, again, is coming alongside to help someone who is struggling. You have a weak brother or sister who is struggling with sin, and what this does, what this describes, is somebody who comes alongside, puts the arm around that person, and endeavors to help them. That is a beautiful word picture. And so what God intends the preaching of his word to accomplish in your life is, first of all, to expose your sin, and then second of all, to call you to repent of your sin, and then thirdly, to come alongside of you and help you overcome your sin and assist you to walk with God in personal holiness. The preached word first wounds you, then it heals you. 
It first cuts you open and lays you bare, and then it puts you back together again skillfully and mercifully and graciously. The Word of God, beloved, is like divine medicine for the wounded, sin-sick soul. It is that for you when you were converted. It remains that for you as a Christian in your sanctification process. Now, there is one final thing Paul has to say in terms of how Timothy must preach the word. When he preaches, he must reprove, rebuke, exhort, but he must also do this in a certain way. This is very critical, he says, lastly, with great patience and instruction. And I am so thankful that Paul included that last phrase. Do you know why? Because it serves as a necessary restraint on the preacher. At this point, there are two temptations the preacher faces. On the one hand, he faces the temptation of being a man-pleaser in the pulpit, of being soft in his preaching, of telling people what they want to hear, of avoiding preaching on sin, avoiding preaching on repentance, avoiding preaching on personal holiness, of preaching like a Joel Osteen or a Robert Schuller. That is the one temptation that he faces. But on the other hand, he faces the temptation of being overly aggressive and even being harsh in the pulpit. And in the pulpit, developing an unloving, ungracious, unkind attitude toward the people. Yes, he is to reprove and rebuke, but he must not become a bully in the pulpit, and he must not beat up the sheep. But that is the very real temptation the preacher faces when he has a high view of Scripture, when he has a high view of preaching, when he understands the law of God, the holiness of God, and the sin of man, when he understands all of these things. It can really move a preacher to become overly aggressive and harsh and unkind. And therefore you have this restraint. Sort of a yield sign that Paul holds up to Timothy and to every other preacher of the word. The preacher must be bold, he must be uncompromising, he must be strong in his preaching, he must confront sin in his preaching, but he must preach with great patience. That's convicting. Talk about the convicting work of the word. I'm convicted now. Note, it's not just patience. Mega patience. Great patience. Large patience. Patience. The preacher must exhibit great patience with the people to whom he preaches. I have seen some preachers on television and the like who have no patience for their people, who scold them, who berate them, who beat them over the head with his very hard preaching. That is a violation. Of this mandate. Preach with great patience. Timothy, you must avoid becoming an angry preacher. You must avoid becoming a harsh preacher. Timothy, things are going to happen in your ministry that will discourage you. There is no exemption from that. 
Timothy, you are going to rarely see quick results in your ministry. You're going to see people respond very slowly to your preaching. People will forget what you said almost entirely at times. You will face then the temptation to get angry and then even to quit in the midst of all of the pressure and all of the difficulty and all of the disappointment. But in that, remember, Timothy, preach with great patience, with large patience. Developed by the Spirit of God within you a large capacity to be patient with all of the difficulties that are incumbent upon the preacher and the ministry of the Word. And then lastly, Paul says, with great patience and instruction. And instruction. This is the word for teaching. Sometimes people have asked me, what is the difference between preaching and teaching? Honestly, I don't really know what that clear line of demarcation is between the two. I find the two to be very similar. The pastor is a preacher and he is a teacher. He's both. He is to herald the word of God. That is the act of preaching. That is what the word preach means. And he is also a teacher who explains the word of God with careful, accurate, and precision in his manner of teaching. So what must the preacher do if he is going to be faithful in his calling? He must have the right attitude in his preaching, and he must have the right content in his preaching. He must view the task of preaching with a sense of solemnity, and he must preach the word of God in all seasons by reproving, rebuking, exhorting the people with great patience and instruction. This defines the pastor's charge for which he will give an account to God. Now, beloved, it is our privilege this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is a time to be once again reminded of the great work of Christ, his glorious death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead to accomplish our salvation. It is a time to celebrate. It is a time to rejoice that we have a Savior. It is also a time to examine our hearts, examine our lives, to confess sins as we come to this table. And before we take a few moments to prepare ourselves to partake of this Lord's Supper, I want to leave you with a final note from the ministry of John Calvin. I couldn't leave this out. A persistent thorn in the side of Calvin in Geneva was a group of people called the Libertines. The Libertines were people who indulged in sexual sin in the name of Christian liberty. We have the liberty to do this. Grace is a license for sin, in their opinion. Calvin, of course, was very much against the Libertines, but his hands were tied. The city council of Geneva did not permit the leadership of the church to exercise discipline upon them or to forbid certain people from partaking of the Lord's Supper. Imagine that. That is a, a disaster. And so on one particular Lord's Day, when they were going to partake of the Lord's Supper there at the church in Geneva, guess who was present among the audience? The Libertines. And they were there to participate in the Lord's Supper, and John Calvin knew that. And this is what Calvin did. He flung his arms around the elements 
Just imagine that scene. Just picture yourself in the church at Geneva on the Lord's Day with Calvin flinging his arms around the elements to protect them from being defiled by the libertines. And here is what he said to them, and this is a quote, These hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned. And dishonor the table of my God. That is the kind of zeal he had for God, for his word, and for his ordinances. Beloved, may we have that same kind of zeal as we come to this table, as we examine our hearts before God in his presence. After Calvin said this, they went on to celebrate the Lord's Supper with a profound silence, as you can imagine. Let's prepare our hearts as we partake of this holy supper.